0: Father God, we thank you for gathering us as your church. We thank you for the redemption that you've so abundantly poured out on us in Christ, that we get to be your people, um, not only as individuals, but as a people. We get to belong to you and to the body of Christ, and we get to gather as the body of Christ and worship Christ together and hear from his word together. And we thank you for your design for marriage and for Uh, giving children to families and having families raise up children. It's a beautiful design. There are many distortions to it in our world. And we pray for wisdom in thinking through these things, uh, thinking through how to walk as wise and godly people who are obedient to your word and who think in ways that are shaped profoundly by your scriptures and not by the world. And uh, so we pray for help in walking through these things in my teaching in all of our hearing, that we would have wisdom, that we would have sharpness of mind and softness of heart to receive from your word, and that we would be a church that more and more uh, fully uh, walks in joyful obedience to Christ, that we would proclaim your excellencies before the watching world. So be with us and glorify yourself in us, in Jesus' name, amen. So um, we are dealing with a special issue regarding parent-child relationships, which is the decision to have children. Let me interrupt myself and say You probably all know this, but we do have handouts that Paul just grabbed right there in the back. If you don't have one, (laughs) thanks, Paul. I didn't seed Paul to get one right there, so I could uh, use him as an example. But we have have these handouts uh, to follow along with if it's helpful. Um, Now, we're going to look, first of all, at some broad biblical principles regarding valuing children, regarding things like adoption, things that are kind of more clear biblical yeses. Um, and then we'll examine some specific ethical issues, uh, things like abortion, contraception, um, artificial reproductive technologies. And um, we're going to generally try to move from areas where the Bible is very clear to areas that are a little bit less biblically black and white and require a little bit more judgment, kind of biblically informed discretion, biblically informed judgment and discernment. And um, just a note as we engage in a topic like this a couple of notes first of all is we're going to kind of attitudes that would that would be necessary for us as Christians to examine topics like this the first is a biblically wise heart of self suspicion and intellectual humility before God the proverbs are full of exhortations about this i, I just have a couple references in your handout proverbs 12:15 proverbs 14:12 about Basically, a fool likes to think he's already right. A fool doesn't listen to counsel. Uh, A fool thinks he already knows everything. But wise people um, kind of recognize, I don't already know everything. And so I need to be open to counsel, especially counsel, of course, from God's own word, from God's revelation, and counsel from others as well. So this is an area that um, we are profoundly influenced by our surrounding culture in ways that uh, draw us toward values that differ from what we find in scripture. And so we need to walk through these issues with a humble and prayerful attitude before God. The second attitude to encourage is an attitude of love that refuses to judge one another on biblically gray areas where our consciences might differ. Um, Romans 14 is kind of the key place biblically where this is discussed. Um, and the whole, really the whole discussion, really the whole of Romans 14 deals with this in a more extended way. But Romans 14.10 sort of distills the point where Paul writes, um, why do you pass judgment on your brother or you? Why do you despise your brother? Uh, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And he's talking about the person passing judgment. It's like somebody who has a more scrupulous uh, standard about what, what is not permissible is judging the other Christian who's partaking of that. And then the Christian th- I'm who says, I have freedom in Christ to do this thing is tending to despise the other Christian for maybe being a legalist or being overly scrupulous and so on. And so there can be a tendency to kind of turn against each other on issues where we have differing convictions. And so he's saying, look, Christ is your brother and sister's judge, not you. Your job is to love your brother and sister and and help them in Christ. Now, it does take judgment, of course, and biblical discernment to figure out what are judgment issues. Uh, Where does kind of biblical law and command end? and sort of more wisdom-based discretion and different convictions begin. And we're going to sort of tread some of that today. I'm not going to, in a lot of these things, some of these things are very morally clear. We'll be clear where the Bible's clear. There are some other things where I'm not going to sort of answer the questions for you, but maybe uh, help equip us to think about what the issues really are that we need to, kind of what are the key questions that need to be discerned biblically. And some of us may land in different places than others on some of these, these matters. And and just a quick note too, when we say not to judge one another or despise one another about different convictions, this doesn't mean that we don't talk about stuff like this. Uh, There's a big difference between judging each other over different convictions and like never talking, um, or say there's a big difference between judging each other and having frank conversations where we sharpen each other. We maybe try to persuade or we just try to understand and try to reason through things together and give each other counsel. There's plenty of room for that kind of thing. And in the body of Christ, we really benefit from um, some of these especially complex issues, even hearing other opinions from other trusted believers. You might end up not not uh, fully agreeing with someone else. That's okay. It's still really helpful to have other believers to walk through these things and talk. So not judging doesn't mean we never talk about it. It just means uh, we, we try to understand this person's accountable to Christ ultimately and not to me uh, with how they walk through some of these grayer issues. Any questions about that or any other thoughts about this sort of preliminaries as we walk through these topics? Okay, um, let's talk first of all about valuing children. And before we get into the the weeds about some of the ethical issues with regard to having children or preventing having children... First of all, we just need to take this broad-level biblical assessment of the activity of childbearing. And in short, the Bible presents children as a blessing. And the Bible presents childbearing as a normal activity to which every marriage should be open. It's one of the chief purposes of marriage. Um, Genesis 128, we, we read this earlier. We've read it a few times in our series, when we've talked about marriage And this is God's creation of man and woman in his image. It says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Uh, Mankind is told to be fruitful and multiply, to make more image bearers of God, to fill the earth with his glory by means of uh, filling the earth with image bearers of him, which is what every human being is. And that's one of the ends toward which marriage is intended. Similarly, Psalm 127, verses 3 to 5. Would someone be, read that? Psalm 127, verses 3 to 5, if you can turn there. Yeah, thanks, Greg. Yeah, let's just get there.
1: <coughs> Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them, he shall not be put to shame. When he speaks with his enemies in the gate.
0: Thank you. So children are a blessing from God. Uh, This is unequivocally, this is a good thing. This is a blessing. Um, And and even in visions when you're kind of older and your kids have grown up. Now, when your kids are little and you're changing diapers and things like that, um, they're not necessarily practically helping you very much. It can can be hard to think this way. But it's giving this vision of, like, when you're old and your kids are grown up, sort of like, they got your back, (laughs) They got your back when you're an older person. There's a lot of wisdom and value in that, uh, just very, very practically, as you've got this kind of army of, of, of kids behind you to kind of uh, support you and, and help you in all kinds of ways. Um, but the, the, the broad point here is that children are a blessing. Children are, are one of the things God told us as, as, as human beings made in his image. Have children. Uh, the authors of our book that we're basing this course on, uh, Kostenberger and Jones, they write... God's ideal is that of a monogamous, lifelong marriage crowned with the gift of children, end quote. Now, uh, we're going to talk uh, a little bit more later about the, the potential for couples saying, oh, maybe not now, kind of limiting that. Uh, it's most important, though, that we start with this very clear foundational issue that children are good. This means that if a couple marries intending not to have children, they're working against the grain of God's design in marriage, Um as as human beings and as a married couple. Biblically, that is not a legitimate attitude. That is not a legitimate kind of purpose to go into marriage saying, we don't want to have kids. Now, of course, there's all these medical, if there's like medical necessity, that's a whole different thing. But just the attitude of being closed off to children is incompatible with God's design for marriage. Um, Now, this is an important starting point because we are creatures, not in a vacuum, but in a culture. And in our culture, we find ourselves facing very strong cultural currents against all kinds of godly values, including children. Um, I wouldn't say our culture is totally, entirely anti-kid, but there's a lot of uh, currents that mitigate against this, this idea of, of children as a blessing from God that make it honestly very hard to have kids. Um, we, uh, as our society secularizes and moves kind of into a more of a, a, a religious secularism away from kind of more traditional vestiges of Christianity, uh, we're moving away from the valuing of children that is kind of more uh, more historically you'd see in our, in our society. And so we're undergoing a fertility crisis. I mean, you don't have to be a Christian to see this. A lot of studies will look at fertility rates. Like I just found some study, some secular news site that said uh, the nationwide birth rate fell significantly between 2007 and 2022, dropping from 14.3 births per thousand people to 11.1 or nearly 23% drop over that 15-year period. Um, and a lot of demographers and people who look at these things are like kind of pulling their hair out, going, This is not it's not good. The, the trends are not good. Well why is that? Now uh, we certainly don't have the scope in this lesson to go really deep into the weeds of why uh, our culture is kind of kind of resisting children. But I, I think it's fair to identify I'll suggest to you a four-part acronym for reasons. The acronym spells left, and I'll just leave, leave it to you to do what you want with, with, the, <laughs> with the, <laughs> that. But um, the first one is limits to autonomy. Let me just say this these things are working uh, in various ways against kind of this sort of, again, I'd say the picture is like a wind or a, or a current that's working against us. Especially, I'm talking, especially people of kind of my own generation of childbearing age or younger that are thinking about potentially having children. just We need to recognize that we exist in a culture where we're, we're facing these, these headwinds, okay? Uh, the first one is limits to autonomy. We, people, my, my kind of cohort or roughly, birthing age people, we were raised to expect a highly customizable life with many dimensions of, uh, of the ability to pursue our desires and have life be the way we want it. Parenting curtails freedoms dramatically. Uh, It commits us to deep self-sacrifice over the long term as we're raising children. That works against kind of the ethos of how we were raised and and the expectations that we were kind of given about life in in many ways. So that limits to autonomy. Second is environmental concern. Many people in our society are against having children because they're concerned about how rising population is stressing the environment. Um, Now, I want to be careful and say it's true that in certain ways, people do stress the environment. There are real issues here. I don't want to totally dismiss any environmental concern, uh, but at the same time the Bible, this is a, just a key kind of worldview watershed. we need to recognize the Bible presents human beings as a blessing to the world, not a curse. That's just such an important fundamental kind of worldview dividing point between kind of a biblical Christian theistic worldview and what so often we find kind of kind of underlying a lot of secular thinking about children and environment and so on. So we have to wrestle with, well, Sometimes populations do stress environment in ways that hurt people. I mean, there's there's real kind of love of neighbor concerns here, but the, the response of oh, people are a blight on the earth, which is kind of the underlying assumption of a lot of environmentalism is totally wrong, biblically. F, financial pressures. Um, in one sense, a current childbearing generation faces financial stresses that our parents didn't. Uh, rising education costs, rising... Um, Housing costs have have outpaced wages, there are some real stressors there. And many couples feel like they can't afford children or have to work so long, both parents have to work crazy hours and don't have time to raise kids. And while I would recognize these stresses are real, we also need to zoom out a bit and still see that we are among the most prosperous people in the history of humankind. And so there are some subtle ways that our culture's kind of, uh, the, the plenty that we've been raised to expect has sort of distorted our thinking somewhat regarding needs. And sometimes the financial pressures, our sense of need is very culturally determined, so that's an issue there. Uh, we've been we've been um, uh, we've just been acculturated to expect very high standard of living, and so financial pressures can mitigate against children. Finally, it's time. Um, our world conditions us with norms that make it difficult to have children. Now, none of what I'm about to say is in itself wrong. This is just acknowledging the facts of how our culture makes makes it hard to have children. But uh, particularly women are raised in, in many places in our culture, raised and encouraged and just thought, made to believe it's normal to spend many years in uh, pursuing education and careers that has a result of tending to push off marriage and childbearing till well beyond kind of fertile years. And so you have couples that aren't even thinking about kids until way later in the kind of biological <laughs> timetable than is than is, has been the case more traditionally. And so that just, of course, has an effect of reducing fertility. If you have an expectation of I've got to get through all these kind of educational and career steps before having kids, that's going to have an effect on, uh, on procreation, on having kids, fertility. So um, again, women woman having a career or getting education, nothing inherently wrong with that, but we just need to recognize the trade-offs. A lot of this is just recognizing cultural trade-offs that we're making as we embrace one value and maybe elevate it and maybe has unintended consequences of reducing other values. So there's all these kinds of ways that we live and kind of swim in this anti-child culture. And so, again, I just want to say as Christians, this is our culture uh, as we live in this society. And so some of these things we've internalized. So we just, as we think biblically about these questions, we need to be willing to have the Bible challenge what's normal to us and what just seems obvious to us. There's In every area of life, you know, there's all these blind spots we're prone to because of certain sins or certain distorted thinking that our culture commends to us, that the Bible is, is pressuring us maybe. I would say this is an area where the Bible kind of pressures our, our assumptions. And so rather than thinking about, you know, we don't want to be legalistic about how many children should you have, telling every couple, you need to have you know, a certain number of children. It's, it doesn't work that way biblically. The Bible doesn't do that. But I would say it's more about assessing our hearts and what we're valuing kind of what relative value we're putting on different interests. And does the, way I, uh, the value I put on various interests align with the way the Bible presents those values? So if you're a married couple and you don't want children right now, I would just urge you to ask yourself, why? Or if you're thinking about getting married and, you're, and you don't want children for years, like, why not? Um, and when you realize the answer, just kind of question yourself and say, well, why is that? It, it, there could be legitimate reasons, but there could be, you know, you might be thinking, I can't afford it right now. Well, there could be some legitimacy to that. But again, ask yourself, well, what assumptions am I making about standard of living and so on? Um, can't give you simple answers on all these things. This is biblical wisdom. But this is just something we need to be aware of, kind of mitigate against and take account for ways that our culture pressures us so away from godly thinking. So um, all that, I'm sure I've raised a lot of questions and issues. Uh, any Rotten Tomatoes coming my way here, <laughs> but um, yeah, any questions or thoughts about that very expansive topic? Yeah, Randy.
1: From a biblical viewpoint or a worldly viewpoint?
0: That's a good hard question to ask. What do you? What do you, are you asking me that or?
1: Yeah, I, I look at all this uh, from a biblical viewpoint. And my specific
0: question goes to the financial pressures, mm-hmm. and you said they were different
1: from what our, my dad got out of work, came back, he was making $1. forty-five an hour, and they bought a house for $5,000. Right. How is that different from today, where it seems you
0: don't have enough? Well, I, I, I'm, I say our situation is different than our parents. I'm not saying your situation. I'm not, I think, and I don't want to get too deep into the weeds. I think financially the situation is pretty different with the current, like, child, childbearing generation financially. There are some ways that it's gotten a lot more difficult. Um, but I don't think that maybe has the mileage mitigating against having children that we might feel that it does. That's kind of the broader point I'm making. Yeah, Yeah, David. Um, Did you run across anything comparing and contrasting with uh, pets? Americans seem to really love their pets, and in fact, (laughs) maybe more than children, or more than they do on their children sometimes, it seems like. yeah. Same time period, like, and uh, how does that fit in? The yeah, pets. Things? Are pets just more environmentally sensitive <laughs> and with autonomy? Or like uh, yeah, <laughs> I would put that. I think that limits to autonomy thing is a very broad topic because it's another one of these areas where we have these really deep sort of assumptions about I can sort of get into the thing I want to get into, and it's legitimate because I like it. And pets are fine. Again, again, this is not wrong in itself, but the way we can sort of decide, like, this is the kind of person I I want to be. This is the kind of life that I'm going to choose from the smorgasbord of lives available to me as I'm going to be a, a dog person. And, and it, it, it assumes this role in our lives that like pushes out things the Bible would have us value more like kids. So that's one of many areas where limits to autonomy is just this basic assumption that I can sort of customize my life um, according to my preferences in all sorts of ways. Yeah, Greg. Just about that,
1: spinning off that, and, and with all of these different areas... It's not always the case, but what's underlying all of that is just rank selfishness. Yeah, right. um, that That is just self oriented. Yeah. And, and self pleasure, self focus, mm-hmm. self
0: defined, just yeah. everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's selfishness can be a, a deep undercurrent. Yeah, man. There's a new term that I've heard recently called DINKS, uh-huh. which stands for Duel Dual Income, income No Kids. Yeah, yeah. I, and they applaud.
1: Free from the burden glorying in their freedoms and yeah, exactly. (laughs) Apparently (laughs) Costco (laughs) is a big hit because they all these videos mention their abilities to freely go to Costco not have to worry about. But anyway, that's but yeah, it's this this valuing of this lifestyle that says I'm not
0: burdened by children. Right. And it's one thing to just find yourself in that stage of life to be doing come it's not sinful to be have doing come and no kids. But there's this, you see this kind of glorying in this lifestyle as a sort of identity marker of like, oh, isn't this great um, that I get to live this way? That that's, yeah, exactly. That's the kind of thing we're talking about. Um, Although I would say, you know, we should be content, right? There's a difference between just embracing with contentment the blessings of whatever stage of life we're in versus I don't want kids. That would cramp my style, that that kind of attitude, um, which, yeah, that's what we're talking about. So let's talk about, so that's kind of broader regarding children and kind of especially regarding having children biologically, but we also could talk about adoption for a moment. Adoption is when people who are not the biological parents uh, take a child who lacks biological parents into their family and become their parents. Um, and there's, there's some clear biblical examples of adoption. We won't go into them, but you may recall in Exodus 2, Pharaoh's daughter adopts Moses from the river Uh, Mordecai and Esther too we see Mordecai adopted Esther he was her cousin but her parents died so he was taking care of her Um, we may not think of this but Joseph adopted was Jesus' adopted father he wasn't his biological father he was conceived by the Holy Spirit very special case but he became his earthly father and he treated him like his son he uh, named him he had him circumcised he raised him up in his trade Uh, you have some references in your handout about that so these practices, just sh- these examples show us that the practice of adoption is honored in the Bible by example. Uh, one of the maybe strongest arguments for adoption is the way it's held up metaphorically, or maybe not metaphorically is the best, but spiritually, as an aspect of our salvation in Christ. This is, a, this is when adoption is talked about most in the Bible. Um, would someone be willing to read Romans eight fifteen to 17? Is a good? Yeah, Terry, thanks. in our sin, and we've been joined to Christ, and so we come to share sonship of God with Jesus. What is his, I think John Calvin said it this way, what is his by nature becomes ours by grace, and we come to, in union with Christ, we get sonship is one of the many blessings that become ours in Christ, that belong to him, and so uh, we get to call God Father because Jesus calls God Father. Um, I remember in John, I think chapter 20, he says, Tell, he tells Mary to tell the disciples after his resurrection, tell my brothers, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Um, that's what it means to be in Christ, to be made children of God. So um, one of the good things about adoption is it images this. It's, it's kind of the picture, one of the most beautiful pictures of salvation we have. And uh, a human adoption can picture that. Um, it can be a powerful means of, of ministry uh, and a wonderful thing for Christians to do. It meets both material and, and spiritual needs. So materially, it's a mercy ministry that alleviates uh, human suffering in a powerful way. I think of a text like James 1.27. There's many biblical passages that talk about God's special care for the widows and the orphans. They're, in biblical times, kind of, and you know, often, um, kind of the most vulnerable groups um, and those most in need of care. And God himself uh, cares especially for orphans and widows, and he calls his people to mimic that care. So he says in James one twenty seven, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father, is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And I, I think adoption could be a good example of a uh, kind of extension of that concept of visiting orphans and widows. Well, taking orphans that need that need parents that don't have any into your own home, and adopt them into your family. It's also can be a, a powerful evangelistic ministry. Uh, just consider if you are a an orphan, you're a child who either your parents have died or, sadly, are unable to raise you uh, due to all sorts of um, life circumstances. Uh, what better home could a child like that land in than in a Christian home, where there is a, a, a husband and wife who, though not perfect, are striving to please the Lord in their marriage and in their their parenting and raising their kids up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, as we hear in Ephesians 6:4. This would be a really good place to land, honestly, if you're a kid who needs parents. So adoption is a wonderful, uh, a wonderful ministry. It's not for everyone, but it is a, a wonderful good work that, that God has set forth for for many Christian uh, families. Um, so those are kind of the two two we've looked at kind of two ways of having kids, uh, having kids biologically, adoption. We're going to now pivot to ways of limiting or preventing children, uh, which is uh, a big change kind of in our topic. So, uh, any questions or thoughts about what we've covered? Adoption, having children, anything else? All right. I figure I wouldn't have a lot of people in here uh, pushing back against adoption. <laughs> it's terrible. Um, let's talk about abortion. Again, we're kind of moving from what's biblically clearest to what's a little bit less clear biblically. Um, and abortion is the practice of ending a pregnancy by killing an unborn child. And you can hear baked into that definition a very clear moral judgment about what it is. A biblical moral judgment um, that recognizes that, that the unborn are human beings, uh, and their lives, like born people's lives, are inherently dignified and sacred because we're in God's image, unlike any other kind of creature in the world. Um, the authors of the book that, we, that we're, we're basing this off of, they, they kind of present, I think, a good two-pronged argument against abortion biblically. The first is general, just the idea of the, um, the, unborn, the unborn being discussed in the Bible as humans. Um, And then the second uh, prong is kind of there is a text that deals more specifically with the issue not of intentional abortion, but dealing morally with the judgment of of someone killed in the womb. Um, So first, let's just kind of look at the broad argument that um, the unborn are people with a dignified human life worthy of protection. So um, would someone be willing to read Psalm 139, verses 13 to 16? Yeah, Paul. 15 to 16? It should be 15 to 16. Yeah, okay. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. All right. how, do we, how do we infer the status of the unborn from this passage? Well, how do we learn anything about the status of the unborn from this text? You, uh, Matt, you have your hand up? Or- well, uh, obviously there's a, there's a person
1: being discussed here mm-hmm. but then in a form that is not akin to what we eventually result in. Human being, mm-hmm. my, it speaks of my substance. So yeah. There's, there's, a, there's an in-process kind of yeah. growth of a you know, child. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but there's a difference in the way they look. So it's unformed substance. Yeah, yeah.
0: Substance is a work in progress. Yeah. But it's mm-hmm. my substance. Yeah, Didi. And Jeff, you had a hand too. So I don't know if you... Do you want to confer and then... Come up with already, the already, God has all, every
1: day of their life planned. Yeah. So obviously, he's already planning all of their
0: days. Yeah. So there's a divine plan for the life of this person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, just the continuity of saying my, me... This was me. I and mean, it just strikes you that this is not, this, David is identifying and saying, I was in my mother's womb, you were working on me. Um, which shows us, like, there's a continuity that stretches back into the, you know, before birth. And saying, God was making me, but it's still me. And God had a plan for me before I was born. And there are other texts that, that talk in a similar way. Jeremiah one five regarding Jeremiah the prophet, particularly Luke one forty one, where the unborn John the Baptist leaps because he's in the presence of Mary who's carrying the Lord Jesus. And so, like, wow, that's kind of a that's not something a clump of cells would be expected to do. Um, so yeah, um, the the these texts like this kind of show us there is there is uh, there's human life going on there, even though it's 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 not yet formed in the 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 form that we are used to seeing um, out, in the, out in the world. Um, so the authors say, while the Old Testament does not provide any theoretical discussion as to whether a fetus is a person, it does def- depict the fetus as the work of God and the object of his knowledge, love, and care. And hence its destruction must be considered contrary to the will of God. Um, yeah, there, there isn't like a, a philosophical treatise going, when does life begin? But it, you have texts that just talk about the unborn like a person whom God cares for and loves. Um, that's a general kind of prong. There's also a specific text that, that comes as close as we get in the Bible to abortion. Uh, would someone read Exodus 21, verses 22 to 25 in the law? Um, is that Rodney? Yeah, thanks. Um, Two. So think about this: You have a pregnant <coughs> woman who's struck, and the child comes out. Now, it's potentially that she's very far along, and the child comes out, and the child's fine. And then, okay, that's that's good, no harm. Uh, there is some kind of penalty still there, I guess, whatever whatever is proportional. But um, the if the so then if there is harm, so if the, oh, a pregnant woman is struck, the child comes out, and there is harm, then the proportional, the appropriate. Penalty is proportionate to the harm that was done, including life for life. You see that? Like, if the child dies, then life for life. This is this law, it's called lex talionis, meaning sort of the law, the, it comes up in the law a few times, this, re, this even retribution, tooth for tooth, eye for eye, um, which, by the way, in the law is not meant to turn people into vindictive monsters, it's meant to limit and. and uh, it's a, it's a. Think about this. This is the law code for a nation. This is meant to limit uh, penalties to what's fair and proportional and, and limit kind of overreaching uh, penalties. But saying if, if, the, if the child died, life for life, um, which is something that early kind of uh, Jewish interpreters and early Christian interpreters picked up on and expanded on, and they would, they would cite Exodus 21 as their rationale for uh, resisting abortion Abortion itself did happen in the ancient world. We're talking more kind of around the time of Christ, the Greco Roman world. It did happen. It wasn't as common. It was technologically not as feasible, of course, as it is today. What was a lot more common was exposing, just leaving an an unwanted infant. And and that was allowable, depending on the father's discretion. And uh, Christians and Jews were kind of known in the Roman Empire for being very countercultural on this, being very strongly opposed to abortion which again did exist and and also the exposing an, uh, of infants that they, they didn't do it. someone wrote about Christians are these people they don't expose their infants um, there's this basic kind of biblical reasoning about the value of a human life that took hold very quickly and marked Christians off from a, a pagan uh, world that was very f- cheap with human life it sounds like familiar' it, like we're kind of we're kind of re-paganizing, honestly in, in the West and it's it's going to look more and more like that that Christians who are biblically conv- convinced Uh, by these things are going to look good and distinct by valuing the life of the unborn. Um, So, of course, this raises question about when does life begin? And the Bible, again, doesn't go into a theoretical discussion. The biblical truth is that the unborn is a person, and there's really no logical stage to begin considering the contents of the womb. A person, other than when... Uh, when the egg fertilizes, becomes a zygote, is what it's called, a fertilized egg. Very early on, cell division begins, and it includes all the person's unique genetic information. Um, so really, any measure, biblically and, and ethically, any measure that interferes with the implantation and survival of a fertilized egg, and from that point on um, to more mature de- stages of gestation, is murder, from a biblical standpoint. is killing a human being. Even if we can't see the person, and even if the person's very, very tiny, um, now, we should say there are sometimes medical situations uh, in which an abortion is sadly necessary to, uh, for, for medical purposes. And I'm thinking of particularly like a tubal pregnancy where uh, a woman's egg is fertilized and implants uh, in the fallopian tube. It's not meant to do that. And what that will lead to eventually is both the woman and the child dying. Uh, a woman cannot uh, gestate an infant to bring it to term in her fallopian tube. And so the idea of going in and, uh, and aborting that child to save the mother's life Biblically, is appropriate because uh, you're, there's no, and there could be different consciences potentially on this too. It seems fairly clear to me that that's appropriate because you're not um, it, the child's life is sadly is forfeit at, at any rate. There's no way that the child could be saved. Um, but anyway, we'll make that aside because there's some medical complexities here. But with regard to um, just we need to understand the unborn. The unborn, uh, the unborn are, are people with human dignity. Um, so, any questions about abortion? <laughs> really light topic for this holiday weekend, but, and we're going getting get into the getting into the weeds with some of this stuff. Yeah. yeah, I got a, a quick a quick point uh, or a question. The, a lot of the argument on the other side is that it's it's my body. I'll do yeah. what I want with it. Yeah. Uh, how do you address that? As far as how would I address someone at that argument biblically? From yeah. The, yeah it's great and there's a lot of and this could be a good topic to talk more about at some point kind of the apologetics and the, regarding abortion and how to interface with the world the whole my body my choice thing I would just say um, I think I think there's a lot of wisdom in just kind of camping out on this the whole the, the Christian and biblical position sort of just starts with this very basic cornerstone point of it's a human life to me like that just clarifies so many of the other arguments it's saying it's a human life Everyone recognizes that autonomy has limits with regard to hurting other people. So if you all but really fringy, crackpot <laughs> people would say, if you have an infant and you say, my autonomy is being limited by the demands of this infant, I choose to leave them in a dumpster or something, everyone would be, say, that's monstrous. You can't do that. Well, we'd say, well, the moral status of the unborn is the same. There's no overriding interest in autonomy. back to that limits to autonomy thing. There's no overriding moral interest when on the other side of the ledger is a human life. It just brings a lot of moral clarity to the situation.
1: Yeah, Craig. Just in in the context of everything, too, it's just good to affirm um, the reality of it being sin, it being murder, yeah. uh, that's unequivocal biblically, uh, but also understanding it's not... The unforgivable sins, and so, if if a person has had an abortion, <laughs> if a person's been involved in, in performing an abortion in any capacity, yeah. anybody's been a part of um, pressuring somebody, yeah. pushing some, just any aspect of that. Those are serious things, but they're not unforgivable. Yeah, and and that yeah. just needs to be. Yeah, I
0: was gonna end of the whole lesson, but let's say it now, Greg. Oh, no, no, it's fine. It's fine. Just any a lot, a lot of these things could have the potential because we're dealing with very high-stakes issues could have the potential to raise a lot of guilt and shame, and we just want to trumpet over this whole thing. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and all sins are forgiven, removed as far as the east is from the west. This could be something that you, like Greg said, you battle with, with feelings of of guilt and so on. You need to know um, you're fully forgiven in Christ and fully justified and adopted into God's family because he bore in his body uh, the the wounds for your forgiveness. So I just want to want to make that very clear. Good point, Greg. Yeah, uh, Sherry.
1: Too was what Paul is saying. How would we address it? I think with any sin, you're addressing something. It's whether the person's eyes have been open to sin at all. Yeah. Because you know we know that the person who whose heart hasn't been transformed does not see this as a sin. Right. So that, you're dealing with a, like Pastor said, a sin issue. Yeah. And to bring him to Christ first, or try to talk to him about their yeah. salvation first.
0: Well, and fundamentally, yeah, fundamentally, we need to, and it's, it's worthy having discussions about the issue, but also fundamentally just recognizing that this is a, in some ways, a proxy war for a more fundamental battle regarding, am I accountable to God for my life? Like, that's kind of the biggest point. (laughs) That's kind of the fight that's underlying the other fight, you know what I mean? Like, so it's sort of this idea of who do I belong to, um, and so, yeah, a lot of the rhetoric sort of just spins out from there. But the, sort of the, the the fundamental issue is who do I belong to morally, um, which gets us right to the issues of God and sin and our need of our need of the gospel. Um, so let's uh, move on and talk about contraception. We're done with that difficult topic. Let's talk about contraception. Um, get uh, so again, we're moving uh, in now into a little bit grayer areas. Um, the Bible doesn't specifically address contraception. And one thing I want to say is whatever view we take, and we're going to probably have different convictions within the church about this, um, some aspects of this topic, maybe not all. Uh, we have to start, I think our authors are wise in saying, we must start with, from the perspective that having children is the expected norm for marriages and should be understood as a good gift from a loving heavenly father. And they, uh, they quote Albert Moeller in warning against what, I, I think this is a really key warning, uh, against what's called the, the contraceptive mentality that sees pregnancy as, and children as impositions to be avoided rather than gifts to be received, loved, and nurtured. Now, if in your conviction you land on the contraception in certain cases in certain ways is appropriate, I, I believe there's, there's biblical room for that conviction. Uh, but even still, I think we need to guard our hearts against, again, these sort of subtle, deep currents, these undercurrents, these assumptions of like kids are a problem and a burden. A lot of what drives contraception and the demand for contraception is these deep kind of underlying assumptions about a kid's going to make life really hard and really bad, etc., and just needing to kind of push against. Again, there, there could be reasons why a couple says not now and, and so on uh, before God in your conscience, but that's different than just, again, because the contraceptive mentality is these kids are a problem, kids are a burden. Um, and it is clear that God has ordered sex to lead to the formation of new life in many cases not in every case of course but this is an essential part of god's natural design for sex and so some of the relevant maybe just to kind of throw out what are some of the relevant questions to wrestle with as we're assessing the morality of contraception at all before we get into the different ways of doing it um i'm not going to answer all these questions these are questions commend to you to kind of think through and wrestle with biblically prayerfully is it ever right to interfere with the natural connection between sex and childbearing? Um, that is, should every act of intercourse be open to conception? Um, and similarly, um, you know, procreation is one of the God-ordained reasons for sex, but it's not the only one. There's companionship, there's, there's uh, just the, the good of physical pleasure that God, you see it uh, championed in the wisdom literature. Um, is it appropriate in certain cases to isolate these purposes and to say, well, uh, companionship and pleasure, yes, children, no, um, and we're going to take measures to limit off and kind of divide out that purpose of sex? Do we have freedom in Christ to do that? That's a question to, to consider. Another question is just to ask sober-mindedly what might be the unintended consequences of uh, artificially controlling birth. And you could look at this kind of, one, one thing to think about, society-wide, I think there's no doubting from a Christian standpoint, society-wide, the advent of the pill and kind of easy and effective contraception has facilitated the sexual revolution in some profound ways and led to a lot of sexual ruin, a lot of sin and a lot of suffering. Um, and so I think that's what Mueller means when he talks about the, the contraceptive mindset. He's saying this broad kind of society-wide effects. When the pill came out, a lot of things got really dark <laughs> from a kind of biblical moral standpoint. But does that mean that it's always wrong in any individual case? You, you might think, well, um, yes, the broad impact has been it's been used to facilitate a lot of sin, but it still can be appropriately used by believers. Um, we're freed in Christ to do that and use it for good. That's something to wrestle with and to, to assess. These are the kinds of questions to be thinking about as a, as a married couple uh, before God and talking about maybe getting counsel on. Um, but if we determine in principle that contraception is biblically lawful, then we need to think about method. And uh, our authors warn, I think this is appropriate, that the term birth control can be really deceptive because it's a, birth control is very broad. It includes things like abortion. So um, we're not talking about birth control, anything to control birth. We're talking specifically about contraception, which is things that prevent the fertilization of an egg. Okay, Because again, in our minds, biblically, that, that point, there's a, very, there's a very clear distinction, right? Once, the, once a life is formed, everything beyond that that limits birth is, is sin. Um, but then the question of what about before that happens is, is more open to, to discretion and judgment. Um, so <clears throat> it's helpful to think about birth control methods on a spectrum. So there are some that are more likely permissible, I think, are, are less controversial like family planning, just looking at the calendar and all these methods of kind of going, when, when are we infertile as a couple trying to sort of avoid pregnancy? Or barrier methods without getting into too much detail, methods that work by a, a blocking mechanism, um, a little bit simpler morally. Um, and then there's more complex things like, uh, like the pill, um, kind of, kind of med- medical contraceptive or IUDs, intrauterine devices, um, and sterilization. Um, having surgery either as a man or a woman to sterilize and make ourselves infertile. Um, again, just questions to raise. Uh, does, you know, the, the biblical concept, 1 Corinthians six nineteen: you are not your own. Uh, does that bar us from having the right to do things like permanently altering our bodies to remove a function God has built in? Are we free in Christ to do that, to sterilize ourselves, determining when we no longer want children? Um, that's a question to wrestle with. The pill and, and IUDs, intrauterine devices, these are complex. One thing to just kind of alert you to is they do multiple things. They they have a contraceptive function of preventing an egg from being fertilized, but they also, if that fails, they can also have the function of preventing a fertilized egg from implanting in uterine wall, which that is a lot more morally, again, our, our intent should go up and say, well, that would be a big problem um, because, again, we have a human life that's being being terminated, being killed. So thinking through the risk of Okay, it's complex, right? It's meant to do this one thing, but if that fails, it might accidentally do this other thing. Um, it requires a lot of discernment and prayerful judgment. And I, what I would say, if you're considering measures like this, is to have a careful and detailed conversation with your doctor, and don't just rely on generalities, but ask very pointed questions about how these things are working and what they would do, um, and, and so that you can know kind of in your conscience how what's going on and what you're signing on to so you can assess it biblically. Um, and then, of course, under the rubric of birth control, there's clearly anything that's in abortive fashion, anything that would, again, kill an, an unborn life, abortion or like the morning after pill that specifically does prevent an egg from implanting, a fertilized egg from implanting, would be clearly biblically out of bounds. So just some, a lot of kind of questions and thoughts and stirring up issues there with contraception. But does anyone have uh, other other points or questions about that topic? Sorry if that's unsatisfyingly uh, <laughs> not deterministic here. We want to be careful not to bind consciences. Yeah, I It's
1: important, too, to remember the biological effects on women mm-hmm. that these have. Yeah. Both contraception and childlessness. Mm-hmm. It's, it's real. hmm
0: that's a good kind of under that unintended consequences. There's, I mean, there's hormonal, the LAs are working hormonally, and so our bodies are not necessarily a system that can be, we're not, you <coughs> we can't just turn one thing off without, of there's all these other downstream effects. So just considering how might it affect the woman's body, and then just seeing that kind of the, the relational, emotional aspect of what are we signing up for with regard to not having children. Yeah. Good points. Good points to. But in the hopper, as we, we wrestle with these kinds of issues. Any other thoughts? All right. Well, um, the last topic to talk about is artificial reproductive technology. So, this is um, kind of on the other side. We have these ways of preventing or limiting birth, these are ways of, of um, facilitating uh, pregnancy and birth. Um, we need to examine artificial reproductive technologies, sadly. So we, we, we see biblically part of God's clear intention for marriage is that it produces children. Um, but in our fallen world, sometimes that's thwarted by the natural evil of just infertility and the Bible called barrenness, just a couple is unable to conceive and have children. Um, infertility is a major plot motif throughout Scripture. There's a lot of characters. It really runs through the patriarchs, in Genesis, Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel, all it's an issue in Genesis, every, every stage along kind of the covenant family line. That's interesting. Um, Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1, and Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, Luke 1, 7, she had been uh, infertile, she and her husband Zechariah. Um, and the Bible recognizes this as a real affliction, a real problem, um, and people cry out uh, in their suffering. And in, actually in all those cases, they cried out to God for relief, and he relieved them, he gave them children. It won't always, the Bible's not promising it will always end that way, but it is, of course, a, the first biblical response to that is to seek God, is to pray and ask for, for mercy and provision there, and to wait on him. It's a hard, it's a hard waiting to do. It's a very, very difficult uh, road to walk. And he may uh, bless with children, but just naturally, spontaneously. He may use means. Uh, there are medical and scientific technologies that the modern world has birthed, uh, pardon the pun, um, to, to uh, take on infertility and to maybe address these problems as we've never had the ability before. But that also raises some really interesting ethical questions, as I saw from the case. New science and technology raises you know new abilities, which raises whole new thorny questions about, Okay, we can, but should we? And how should we? And how do we decide whether we should and how we should? Um, so first thing we're going to do is survey some of the methods of artificial reproductive technology. And then we'll consider some of, again, the biblical and moral dimensions that would we'll go into assessing those methods. So the the first one, and this is from, like, less of a deviation from the normal pattern of conception to more, more, uh, devi- that's kind of the, the spectrum here, is less to more of a deviation from, from nature. So... First, you have a. And I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about these, but intrauterine injection, where uh, we'll just say the seed is concentrated and inserted into the woman's body, where it has a higher likelihood of fertilizing an egg. Um, not a major, just dis- uh, change from kind of the natural order of things. A little bit uh, different is gamete intrafallopian transfer, where both a sperm and egg are, are harvested and put together and then transferred into the woman's body with the hope that they'll have a higher likelihood of fertilization. The next step from there is in vitro fertilization, which is similar to gamete intrafallopian transfer, but the fertilization actually occurs in a lab vessel. Um, That's what in vitro means, it's Latin for in glass. So the fertilization is happening in a glass, I think literally a glass piece of labware, and then it's implanted into the mother's body. Uh, And then surrogacy. And the authors, I'm going to quote the authors on surrogacy. The gestation and birth of a baby occur in a woman who either is not the child's biological mother or is willing to donate her egg and carry a child but relinquishes parenting rights to those contracting with her to carry the child. Often surrogacy, it seems like it's often used for uh, same-sex so-called married couples um, that, of course, biologically you can't produce children as same-sex couples, so they'll use surrogacy. Like two men will use surrogacy. They'll, they'll hire a woman to, to produce and carry a child for them. Uh, but a husband and wife couple might do that too. Um, what, what, are we, what are considerations for assessing these methods? Uh, I would say that the methods we just outlined range from biblically permissible to outright sinful. And then there's some, some stickiness kind of in between, some, some, some gray areas in between. So principles to consider. One of them is the sacredness of life for the unborn. We've already been over this. Uh, So just this question of does this method lead to a life being formed and then destroyed? One example is that it's typical for in vitro fertilization to fertilize more eggs and thus create more human lives than the couple has the intention and ability to implant and birth and raise. Um, Usually they'll they'll do a bunch because there's a high attrition rate. There's a likelihood that a bunch of these won't make it and they'll choose the ones that seem most viable, I believe. And uh, they'll freeze others, uh, maybe indefinitely. Um, they'll just eventually destroy many of them, kill many of them. Um, it might be possible uh, to do in vitro fertilization without doing this. As a Christian who's committed to what the Bible says about the unborn, it might be possible to do in vitro fertilization in a way that you're not, uh, you're, you're not setting yourself up to waste human life. So I, I don't want to just say every time you hear if someone did IVF, you know that, that they were... Uh, they were discarding human lives we don't i I, there there are ways again this would just be something if you're considering this uh just be aware of these norms it is normally baked in as an expectation of ivf that there will be uh there will be zygotes there will be um children who are formed and then discarded um so things like that Uh, does this method is this going to lead to human lives being lost being wasted uh, another consideration is dignity of life for both mother and child. So humans are made in God's image and have inherent dignity. And uh, this includes things like the mother-child bond. Uh, looking at something like surrogacy that, I mean, this feels very crass, but this is literally what it is. It's, it's buying a baby from a mother. Uh, it's 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 forming a baby inside a mother with the intention of somebody else owning the baby contractually and, and, and paying money for it. Uh, this this degrades, this This uh, violates the dignity of life of both the mother and the child and really the bond that, that God meant for mothers to have with children. There's some really sad stories in the news that have come out about surrogacy situations where um, just really heartbreaking stuff that's really, you just realize, this was never this situation was never meant to be and it can create some some really unjust and tragic dilemmas. Uh, Lori, do you have something about that?
1: Do you separate that from... Somebody who gets pregnant and decides to put their baby in right. adoption. That's great. So, yeah, that's a
0: really good but. But what about? Because I just said surrogacy that's sort of, that sort of is designed to separate a, a, a child from their mother. What I would say is there's versus adoption. Adoption is, is responding to evil in the world. Like adoption is saying this is the world we live in is that um, sometimes – a, a parent's not able to take care of a child. Are you talking about like a mother? Like it's intended for me before the child's born that the the parents going to give the child up for adoption? I, I
1: know you said I don't want I, w- I don't want to have an abortion, but I will put this baby up for adoption because right.
0: The, yeah. That's my autonomy. Yeah, yeah. What I would say there is yeah, that's a good ethical issue to, to wrestle with. What I, one thing I would say is I think. One thing that is in, is in place there is, in general, adoption is just dealing with the, the the reality of the fall in the world that parents aren't always able to care for their children. I think the Bible does recognize that. Um, you know, you even have like Moses' mother had to voluntarily give Moses up because she would have had to kill him otherwise, right? So there's a sort of like, what's the best available option for the interest of the child? Mm-hmm. To me, a situation where it's still voluntary, I, the, the, one of the troubling things with surrogacy is that it's for money, and so you're, it's hired out. And secondly, there becomes a contractual obligation where um, once the mother is raising this child, she can't, like, back out of it. That's very troubling morally. So in an adoption situation, if at any point up to the moment the child's handed over, the mom says, no, I, I can't do that, I'm pretty sure no, she, she's not going to be forced to do it. Uh, if at the last moment she says, I'm keeping this baby, she, she keeps her baby. But these kind of contractual situations for money uh, really kind of turns into a slavery situation. I mean, it's hard to distinguish it from slavery, honestly. It's money being exchanged for the right to human, you know, to human being. Does that, I don't know, that, that's a great question. I don't know, it's a little bit of a foggy answer, but those are some things to think through. I wouldn't say at all that a mother who, say an unwed mother who feels like, I can't care for this kid and I'm going to commit this kid to adoption... I don't think that's sinful at all. But um, it is worth wrestling with the moral issues, yeah. Yeah, uh, John. One, one, one slight difference, too, with putting a child up for adoption, it's the intention is to save the child. Yeah. Right? Like, the parent can't take care of them, so they're right. putting them somewhere where they can be taken care of. Right. <laughs> but the point is, a really bad situation, and a kid needs care and love. So what are we going to do that's best for the kid? Versus, we're going to create a kid to fulfill the desires of this couple. Um, yeah, that, that's a that's also a, a pretty different. Situation. Yeah, man. I think
1: the, the situation Lori is referring to is a, is a woman who may not believe in abortion, but out of a selfish desire for autonomy, decides I'm not going to give this
0: kid. I'm going to give this
1: kid up. Right. So
0: it's it's going to impact my life. It's not. It's not. I can't take care of it. Whereas, right. Right, so, again, yeah, right, Matt, like, it's not necessarily a good choice either, from all the things, the LEFT things that we said, like, it's not necessarily a good choice to even, but also just, right, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of complexity to recognizing this is a very suboptimal situation for a child to be raised in without a father, but, um, but could it be sinful selfishness? Yes, it could, that could be a factor. I wouldn't want to blanket assume that it is, but yeah, that's a really good question. Yeah, Garrett. It's I've wrestled with it a little bit, too. I'm not sure what the answer might be, and this might not be the right time for that. But there seems to be sometimes, again, the opposite side of a, a moral argument about, why would you spend this money and go through the effort to do all these mm-hmm. options to conceive life, or to have your own, when yeah. you have so many children who need adoption. Right. So that's it. great, that's so another, way or morally to to assess and pray before God is if you're a couple of struggling fertility, is asking like in our con and I think people are going to land in very different places, conscience wise of how many resources do we sink into conceiving versus adopting, which is also expensive and difficult. But yeah, I would say that's just an area to pray and and discern through and kind of ask always biblically sort of ask the question of what's my heart doing? Why is my heart, you know, and, uh, they're going to land in different places. That's a really good dimension to consider. Um, the, the, last, the last sort of thing to account for with these methods, and again, it, it applies to surrogacy in particular, is just the authors raise a good point, and it's kind of cracking open a nut that maybe we, we can't totally um, solve here, but it's potentially adulterous and, and, and violates the marriage bond to just think about like looping in another person into the process of producing a child. Now, adultery... The way the Bible treats it, it's just it's this lumped thing of it's sex outside of the marriage bond. You know, you're married and you have uh, relations with someone who's not your spouse, which could lead to a life being produced. Of course, there's more to it than that. Uh, current medical technologies have have created a way to separate out those two things that in the biblical you know worldview, the biblical era, they were always lumped together. So it's it, it, again, it's a kind of a um, a complex issue. But I think there's a good Case to be made that there is something inherently adulterous in the sense of inserting another person into this man-woman bond that God intended to produce a child. Um, just something to also think through it. It should at least raise scruples and go, huh, um, this certainly um, is, is a deviation from the norm and maybe sinfully so. Um, So, in conclusion, um, artificial reproductive methods, it's very similar to the birth control question. There are some methods that are clearly sinful, some that are clearly um, permissible, and there's others that just require a lot of discernment. And I would say the same thing I said about um, birth control. If you're thinking about doing one of these things, have some very specific, very detailed pointed conversations with doctors to figure out what exactly is going to be done, especially filtering it through this biblical grid of these biblical values of the of the unborn Um, so that's it for artificial reproductive technology any other other questions or thoughts or rotten tomatoes (laughs) about those things yeah Patty
1: I like to preach the baby gospel some of you may know this (laughs) so I've been waiting (laughs) I'm kidding anyway but I think bottom line all of this is about your heart mm-hmm. before the Lord mm-hmm. and why not to have children better be from a heart that mm-hmm. wants to bring glory to the Lord yeah. as the ultimate goal of your life.
0: Yeah. Amen. And
1: secondly, we need to play the long game, people. You're going to live a long yeah. time and children will help yeah. if the Lord blesses you with them. Yeah. That's
0: the Psalm 127 thing. Yeah, and the, the dinks make these videos that Matt talked about. They're like, I'm a dink. I get to whatever, whatever. You know, it's it's kind of sad. You're thinking, well, what, what's your video going to look like in 40 years? You know, <laughs> it's gonna just realistically, it's gonna be a lot more blue. So, yeah, and and just to underscore that point, you, it's not regarding children, but regarding marriage. Paul makes his point in First Corinthians 7, and he's talking about the relative benefits of singleness and marriage. And he kind of says, like, if you're single, you can glorify God. You can serve God in some ways more freely. Paul's mindset is like there's really unique ways you can glorify God in every life stage. And and that kind of mindset of, okay, if I have kids or don't have kids, the question to ask is I belong to Christ. I'm redeemed by the Lord. My life is for his glory, whether I eat or drink or whatever I do, do it for the glory of God. Um, and it might be that we want kids for God-unglorifying reasons too. You know, like it, it's not – it doesn't only work one way. It could be that our desire for kids is I'm going to have a kid that – Gets to the major leagues and vindicates all of my dreams, you know, and all, that, all this stuff. There could be uh, ungodly heart motives for any action, so that's a really good point, Patty. Just just pulling the threads before God and asking why, 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 what do I want, and bringing my heart into alignment with God's God's purposes. There's also a big difference between being content with a state God has ordained versus just not wanting a good thing that God has said that we should want. Okay. Greg, did you have? A- yeah. <laughs>
1: Uh, one is uh, with that. It is interesting in that in the first covenant, you know, in creation, as we've affirmed, and, and totally the absolute blessing of children and um, uh, the command to, to be fruitful and multiply. Mm-hmm. Yet in the new covenant, in a, not 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 negating <laughs> that, but in the new covenant, we're called to make disciples. Yeah. And, and so, just that focus that we live with and seeing that big big
0: picture. This yeah. Is point. It's the same point uh, with marriage that you look at the Gospels that it's kind of delicate because on the one hand, it would be wrong to say Jesus denigrates marriage. Some people will kind of, it's kind of careless. Jesus, Jesus he doesn't denigrate marriage. He upholds everything good. The Old Testament is about marriage. But then he says, but your loyalty to me and the kingdom of God supersede that. And it's the same with children. Uh, the, the Everything the Old Testament says about the goodness of children and the goodness of, Filling the earth with, with with human beings in God's glory, everything of that's true. But there's this higher value of um, in in redemption and in the kingdom of God. Disciple making is kind of the ultimate priority. And you have promises like in Isaiah 54 about kind of I would say eschatological promises, looking ahead and saying your inheritance will be better than sons and daughters, even those of you who 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 are um, who are eunuchs, those of you who are who are infertile in this life, if you never have children. So not to feel if you're in the kingdom of God, we don't want to come out feeling left left out like, oh, this really, really great blessing that I miss out on, in a sense, yes, but what you are a part of is much greater and, and more eternal and permanent, and that's the hope you can take is your inheritance in Christ is far better than what you didn't get in this life. So, yeah? This is
1: kind of an unapologetic uh, advertisement for next week's class as well, which I'm teaching next week, but it's one thing to have babies and to make babies. It's another thing to raise children in a Christ-exalting yeah. one. And, and that's the focus of next yes. week. Next week?
0: So um, we've looked at biblical perspective on having children, preventing children, using medical technology to assist uh, fertility. Um, this is just a case of so many things that mo- modern uh, technologies have aided the preservation of life in so many ways. We can applaud and thank God for it, but it also has raised all these really complex conundrums. And I think these bioethical things just Hang on tight. <laughs> they're getting weirder and more dystopic, and we're going to have to sift through some really, really strange um, moral issues in the decades to come. But I hope today's lesson helped orient us to some of the biblical issues and give us equipment for discerning them. Again, you know, let me reiterate that we just approach all this with an attitude of, of prayerfulness and humility before God, recognizing that, um, that you know, He needs to critique our thinking in certain ways by His Word and by His Spirit. Um, and also, again, just this two pastoral notes, uh, just what Greg said earlier, if, if you're, if you're struggling with guilt or despair and some of these things, just to remember that, uh, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more, and, and what Christ has done for you is so complete and sufficient. Uh, it's God's will that you, you live in the, the assurance of, of what Christ has done in justifying you. Um, and also, if you're considering some of these thornier issues, contraception, uh, Reproductive methods. Um, any of these things. I'll just open door for us as pastors. We would love to discuss these issues with you. I would actually commend, I don't want to burden your consciences. You have to get permission from us. It does it's not that way at all. But really, it would be wise of you to get counsel from those whom God has charged with the care of your soul and just to have a conversation. Because these issues are they're high stakes, they're thorny, and just in humility, it would just it would be wise for you to get counsel from one of us. We would love to walk alongside you and as, by God's grace, as you, I hope you know, we, we don't seek to be heavy-handed and domineering about things that are going beyond what's written in Scripture. Um, but yeah, just please come talk to us. We'd love to, to help. So with that, I will close this in prayer, and I'm glad to discuss. Uh, my email's in the back of your handout. Come talk to me if you have anything else you want to discuss or ask. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you for the, um, just the design of humanity as your image bearers and the, the wonder of marriage and children. Um. We appraise your wise sovereignty with regard to each of our individual lives, uh, those of us you've ordained to have children or those you've ordained not to have children. We know that in Christ we have enough to be sufficient. We have enough to say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me and to have contentment. Um, we, we pray that you grant us wisdom as your people regarding these matters, that we would uh, just be thoroughly biblical in the way we think about the world in our lives, thoroughly uh, open to the critiquing uh, with the way your word challenges our hearts and our values uh, we want to live for Christ and we want to live in a way that's subjected to your wisdom because we know that's a good life that's a joyful life and it gives glory to you so help us uh, God as, as individuals, as couples and families and as a church to be a, a people who support and encourage and, uh, and reason frankly with one another to, to seek wisdom together from you uh, we, pr- we pray a blessing on our time together uh, that we just had in, in Jesus' name. Amen.